Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Awards in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. This time we are looking at 1935's Mutiny on the Bounty. This was directed by Frank Lloyd. And the screenplay was written by Talbot Jennings, Ampersand Jules Firthman, and Carrie Wilson, based on a book by Charles Nordoff and James Norman Hall. I don't recall if we've discussed the differences between the word and and the word and the ampersands, have we? No. Okay. Now might be a good time to do that, because that is a, a standard Writing Guild of America convention. When you see the word and then that indicates the names before and after were working independently. When you have an ampersand, that's a writing team. And then the most recent draft are the names that were listed first. So Carrie Wilson did the first draft of the screenplay, and then Talbot Jennings and Jules Firthman collaborated on the rewrite of Carrie Wilson's screenplay. And we have several returning individuals to the Academy Awards this year. We've already covered one Frank Lloyd film, Cavalcade, which for our listeners was one of our past controversial episodes. Uh, you and I both did not think that Cavalcade should have won its particular year. Uh, Clark Cable is back after winning Best Actor for It Happened One Night, and Charles Lawton had previously received the Best Actor Award for The Private Lives of Henry VIII. Yeah, so they definitely brought in people who've you know, been recognized and appreciated by the Academy in the past. So we should get into whether we think this this particular effort was worth it or whether it seems like, oh yeah, those guys together, how could it go wrong? <laughs> and they just hand him the award because there are years where it feels like that. And I believe, Trey, it is your turn to do the plot summary. Sure, Blaine. Mutiny on the Bounty follows the tale of Captain Bly his first mate, Christian Fletcher, and midshipman Roger Byam. All three are on a voyage to Tahiti to try and transplant bread plant fruit to the West Indies. On the trip, Bly proves to be a harsh taskmaster, and the crew mutinies on the return voyage from Tahiti to England. Bly attempts to hunt down his mutinous crew, recovers some of them, takes them back to England for trial, and as a result of the ensuing court-martial, English naval tradition is changed, and there's a better respect for the crew amongst the officer class. Yeah, that does sum it up, and it is based on a true story, which I suspect is the reason Captain Bly survives. He is a harsh taskmaster, and I suspect if if this was a work of fiction, not only would he have died, the audience would have cheered when he died. 
based on the way he was treating his crew. He he certainly made out to be the villain of the film. Now, this film has become controversial. It's considered a faithful adaptation of the novel, but the novel is now thought to have taken several liberties with history. Um, I've done some research on this for this podcast, and most contemporary, contemporary historians do not believe that Bly was the evil villain that the book and the movie portray him as. Most of his logs and records of the time actually show that he was quite progressive in his treatment of his crew. Yeah, and that could well be. And in fact, his logs are available on Project Gutenberg. So we can hear Bly's perspective in his own words. I tried reading it. Frankly, it is difficult because it's not meant to be a narrative. So it's not meant to engage and manipulate the emotions of the readers. It's meant to be a very passive, this is what happened, an unemotional version of events to let readers make up their own mind. So as a novel, it's not particularly engaging, but that's because it wasn't being written as a novel. So that, you know, it doesn't mean it was poorly done by any stretch of the imagination. That's just, that was the expectation for that type of text. And while the mutiny was a famous historical event of the the day, the piece of it that stood out in most naval fans' minds until the novel put forth its narrative was actually Bly's escape, for lack of a better word, of the mutiny. And they do cover this in the film. He set adrift in a lifeboat with approximately 14 other officers and members of the crew who chose not to revolt and managed to survive a 3,500-plus-mile journey across the ocean to finally land, finally land in port in friendly territory. Yeah, that is impressive. Whether you like the man or not, you know, it, you've got to admit, if the, going from where they were to making it to land is no mean feat. When they're cut loose on that lifeboat, I can't imagine that anyone who was still on the bounty truly expected those guys to live. And the fact that they did survive, given how far they were from port and how many resources they had, is a credit to the seamanship of Captain Bly and that crew. And that's also something that they do not shy away from in this film. No, I I mean, again, I do feel the movie takes a side. I do feel like the movie sets its camp in Bly's a villain, but they they do give him his spotlight on his voyage from the bounty. I don't remember where they finally set port at, but they, uh, as you said, they do cover that piece. And I don't want to say he has a change of heart, but he's not a martinet in that segment of the film. No, not at all. Uh, this kind of cemented the perception of Charles Lawton after this. The Private Lives of Henry VIII, uh, I believe, was 33, or won, he won the Best Actor Award in the 33 uh, ceremony. So there's a brief period of time where he would be caricatured as Henry VIII. But from this film forward, 
If anyone did a caricature or parody of Charles Lawton, it was as Captain Bly. Yeah, he he nailed the role. I mean, like you said, the film definitely takes a side. I can't imagine that most of the audience would watch this and feel more sympathy than hatred toward Bly. He just seems completely cruel and completely unreasonable. And he he nails it. So you walk out wanting to hate this man. It It is a very definitive role for the way it, it was made. And that's saying a lot. Like, you know, we've talked in the past about, you know, you mentioned Cavalcade in particular, having previously been directed by Frank Lloyd. This is an era where the Academy really likes those sweeping historical multi-generational stories where we're just kind of checking in on some key moments of a family, but there's, you know, a lot of the middle taken out. This is a story that, well, it does take place over the span of a couple of years just because of the sailing technology at the time. It feels like it could be just a couple of days. It feels like there's a continuity and for the most part, the emotions of the crew are picking up on where they would have been emotionally the last time we saw them. So, it is very engaging and well done. This is one watching it. I, you know, I don't want to tip the hat too much, but I have no problems imagining that this would be nominated for Best Picture even before I compare to what else came out that year. So it's not like, oh yeah, I guess with that little competition it belongs on the list. I watch it and I say, yeah, it belongs on the list. Whatever else was made that year, this belongs on that list of nominations. Particularly since 1935 was a year with 12 nominations for Best Picture. No, I agree. And I think what... I I think there are two things that are responsible for that. One is the setting. When they do get to Tahiti, which is a magical place, it's very lush and exotic, which, you know, that was part of the function of film at the time, uh, transport me to somewhere that I would never be able to go. You also had two strong actors elevating each other's game. The, the screen crackles with energy when Gable and Walton face off. Yeah, they they do feed on each other, and they are two of the great actors in this. Um, we'll get into the all the nominations in more detail in the, a couple of minutes here. But Gable, Lawton, and Franchot Tone as Bayam were the three people who were nominated for Best Actor for this film. So out of five Best Actor nominations, this film claims three. So it's 60% of the Best Acting performances of the year are in this film. And I... I think this is what gave rise to some of the supporting categories, correct? It wouldn't surprise me. Because, yeah, it really does feel like, in today's market, Gable and Lawton would be the two nominated for Best Actor, and Francho Tone would end up in the supporting category. It's not that he's an unimportant character, but really, it's the, the Christian Bly relationship at the core of everything here. That's where it all comes in. I mean, when we first meet Christian, he is the devout naval man. He is, he's actually running a press gang. So for those who aren't familiar with what the press gang was, that's the gang that would go around and press you into service. 
So one of the nice symmetries of the film, for the contrast, it starts off with a lyrical version of Rule Britannia. Right? Rule Britannia, Britannia leads the waves, or rules the waves, sorry. But one of the lines in there is that they never, 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 ever shall be slaves. That's in the opening credits. Cut to Clark Gable running the press gang, or his character running the press gang, which basically enslave six random people in a pub to fill out the crew on this ship. So just out of nowhere, yep, you're you're going to be serving on this ship. You'll be back home in two years. Even the guy who just got married and who has a pregnant wife. It's like, yeah, you'll be home in two years. So it, it's just, like I said, it's interesting. I find that contrast. They start off with that rule Britannia about how they'll never be slaves. and then. They end up enslaving part of the population for this. And they, they end on that same, you know, the same song as well. After they've gone through and done some of the reform, including the reduction or elimination of set press gangs. Roger Byams, an interesting character. And you're right, Crenshaw Tone does a great job with the role. You expect him to get caught between Bly and Christian Fletcher. I, I didn't mention this in the synopsis, but it's a uh, Christian Fletcher is the first mate. And when he finally breaks down and has had enough of Bly, he's the one who actually leads the mutiny. But, but it's more Roger gets caught between his moral compass and Christian Fletcher. He's never... He's never a confidant of Bly's. He's never on Bly's side, so to speak, other than mutiny is wrong. And mm -hmm. he's an amalgam of... He, his character's based on an amalgam of a couple of uh, real-life characters. He's the unwitting mutineer. And for our listeners, what I mean by that is, during the mutiny, he was knocked unconscious below decks, the crew set loose Bly and the other officers who did not partake in the mutiny, and Bly comes to, and suddenly he and another midshipman are now on a boat with a mutinous crew. Yeah, because that, that boat that they cut them loose on was too small for all the people who were loyal to Bly. So in Bly's mind, he's loyal to the mutineers, but Byam never was. So, yeah, that, that is where he gets caught. And like I said, this is moral compass, because as nasty as Bly is, every act we see from him seems to be permitted, whether it's actually within the set of rules, or in the case of taking some personal treasure and personal bounty, the kind of thing that's not necessarily within the rules of the Royal Navy, but the kind of thing that is so common that they don't really do anything about it. And I wonder, so there's a character, Mr. Mags, who is Bly's secretary, and Mags stirs up quite a bit in the film. There's a way you could almost interpret it as, is Bly taking all of these things, or is Mags taking all of these things, uh, um, whether on Bly's behalf or not, and Bly just feels like he has to back his man. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it is definitely left ambiguous because the we don't know for sure that Blight is taking this stuff. He denies taking everything. And it's always that one crew member who said, oh, I, I took it off ship under Bly's orders. So he's opening, openly admitting to taking it off ship, but there's no documentation that he got it, that he got the orders to do so. So again, could be read either way. And that's one where, you know, if we go back and read Bly's logs, which are, like I said, they're, they're long and they're dry because that's what they're supposed to be. I don't know if that would illuminate anything because that the portion I was able to get through didn't mention taking anything, but I wouldn't really expect them to because that's, like I said, not consistent with the rules. It just seems to be a rule that everyone agrees to bend. The only other character in the film I thought it was worth mentioning, and I didn't write down the actor's name, but uh, Mr. Bacchus, the perennially drunk surgeon, between him and, I'd almost say cabin boy, but he's too old to be a cabin boy. But the um, deckhand played by Herbert Munchen, those are your two comic relief characters in the film. Particularly Bacchus, he's a he's named after the the Roman god of uh, revelry and wine and debauchery. And Bacchus is convinced that there's nothing that can't be cured with a out a good swig of rum and he's lost a leg so he's kind of the stereotypical wooden-legged sailor but every time he recounts the tale of how he lost his leg it's a different tale yeah he was played by dudley diggs or diggis i've got the name here he was also the chief detective in the 1933 invisible man the hg wells adaptation he was smithers and emperor jones mckenzie and raffles and he played Casper Gutman in the 1931 version okay. of the Maltese Falcon. So the one that's 10 years prior to the much more famous version with Hep, uh, Humphrey Bogart. I've watched The Invisible Man, and I've watched it recently, and I, I didn't remember him. Herbert Munchen was a popular English character actor of the time. Uh, we've actually already seen him in Cavalcade. Uh, he was the husband in the downstairs uh, family, and you've probably already seen it. I know I have, and we'll watch it again as part of my prep for our 1938 episode. He's also in The Adventures of Robin Hood. Yes, yeah, I have seen that. It is That was a good one. And yeah, I'm not surprised you don't remember him as the chief inspector, because I watched that in the last couple of months as well. It's not a big role. So we're looking at maybe five minutes of screen time or less. Right. So getting into all of the nominations for the film, because we've covered some of them. This actually held the record for the eighth annual's most nominations. It was nominated for eight awards. So it was nominated for Outstanding Production, which is the Best Picture equivalent, and it won, which is why it's the focus of the podcast. It was nominated for Best Director, but lost to John Ford on The Informer. Interestingly, there were only officially three nominations. The other was Henry Hathaway for Lives of a Bengal Tiger, but Michael Curtis ended up being nominated for Captain Blood as a write-in nomination. So there were enough people who added his name to the ballot that they officially listed him. Best Actor went to Victor McLaughlin, also for The Informer, as Jippo Nolan. We talked about Gable Lawton and Tone being nominated. The fifth 
and unofficial write-in nomination was Paul Muni for Black Fury. We discussed Muni in I Am a Fugitive for the Chain Gang when we were wondering how that didn't win. Best Actress went to Betty Davis for Dangerous, and this did not receive any awards or any nominations in that category, which makes sense. This is a very heavily male-biased film in terms of the cast and crew, but given that it is based on historical events that took place when the British Navy was incredibly sexist, you know, you wouldn't expect females to have a huge role in this. There's a little bit in terms of the women that the men left behind, and then some of them fall in love with women they meet at Tahiti. But even then, there's not a lot, because, well, the women at Tahiti, at the start of the film, don't speak English. So the next nomination that this actually got was for the Best Adapted Screenplay. The other nominations were Captain Blood, again, based on a write-in ballot, and Lies of a Bengal Tiger, or Bengal Lancer, sorry. But the the actual award went to Dudley Nichols for The Informer, based on Liam O'Flattery's novel, although Nichols refused Mm. the award. So uh, I'm not sure why. Uh, The other two nominations that this received, it was nominated but did not win for Best Scoring. That also went to The Informer. And was nominated but did not win for Best Film Editing by Margaret Booth. That award went to A Midsummer Night's Dream with Ralph Dawson. So even though this had the most nominations, with eight, the only award it took home was Best Picture. So I wonder, looking at the best actors, either Victor McLaughlin in The Informer is just absolutely incredible, or maybe the, the strength of Gable and Lawton ended up splitting the vote. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if this film got the most not, or got the most votes. It's just no one individual clearly stood out as the winner of the two. Victor McLaughlin does give a really really powerful performance in The Informer. I would easily say it's as good as Gable's performance here. In terms of standing the test of time, Lawton's performance is better remembered. I I do recommend seeing The Informer if you haven't. Good to know. That is one of the 12 Best Picture nominations. So, again, running through the the stats as we do, if we look at the performances on Letterboxd, the highest-rated film from 1935 was not nominated for Best Picture. That film is actually Bride of Frankenstein. Which, I will throw out there, does have Charles Lawton's wife in it. Yeah. And it it is a good movie, and... In my opinion, it is the first on a very short list of films from the 20th century that are sequels which are better than the original. Oh, I agree. So the next highest rated American film, according to Letterboxd users, is A Night at the Opera. Then we have Ruggles of Red Gap, which was nominated. The complete list of nominations is Mutiny on the Bounty, Alice Adams, Broadway Melody of 1936, Captain Blood, David Copperfield, The Informer, The Lives of a Bengal Lancer, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Les Miserables, Naughty Marietta, Ruggles of Red Gap, and Top Hat. So, after Ruggles of Red Gap, we have Top Hat, 
So now we've got two of those nominees on the list. The 39 Steps may not have been eligible. It is a film from 1935, but the Academy Awards consider the years as the year it first aired in Los Angeles. So while the 39 Steps was available in Britain, I don't know if it made it to Los Angeles in 1935. Well, and I didn't know if they excluded it because they considered it a British film instead of an American film. At this point, they weren't distinguishing their country of origin, and they, they haven't really. That's why even today they don't call it best foreign film, it's best foreign language film. Okay. Which kills me, because that's where Spanish films go, and Spanish is hardly a foreign language in the United States. The United States has no official language, and I would say Spanish is probably the second most common. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we've got Steamboat Round the Bend, Captain Blood is on that list. The Good Fairy, Mad Love, and then Mutiny on the Bounty is the next one that shows up on Letterboxd, slightly before The Informer. So that comes pretty much immediately afterwards. So if we look at the IMDb listings, so again, sorting by year of release in the advanced search, I've got them ranked by you know average user score. If we look for those that have at least a thousand votes. So really the, the movies that have survived. Some of these nominees don't appear to have survived the ages. There were fires and whatnot that destroyed some of them and they weren't properly preserved. Mm -hmm. IMDB users put A Night at the Opera with the Marx Brothers at number one. And Bride of Frankenstein is number two. Top Hat is three. Then A Tale of Two Cities, Page Miss Glory, and Mutiny on the Bounty is the sixth highest rated film of the year. Followed by Captain Blood, Ruggles of Red Gap, Man on the Flying Trapeze, The Good Fairy, Les Mis, The Informer, Gold Diggers of 1935, The Personal History, Adventures, Experience, and Observation of David Copperfield the Younger, which I suspect is the one that's just listed as David Copperfield, mm -hmm. Charlie Chan in Paris, Whole Town's Talking, Charlie Chan in Shanghai, Mad Love, The Lives of a Bengal Lancer is 20th. On that list with a 7.2 out of 10, there's G-Man, Border Town. So we've run through most of the nominations. By that point, Naughty Marietta shows up at number 32 out of 49 films. A Midsummer Night's Dream got a lot of nominations. That's at 33. Alice Adams shows up at 37. So you and I both track our watching habits with Letterboxd. And before we started recording, I pulled up my rankings for 1935. And I haven't seen all of the best film winners, but I've seen maybe a third to a half of them. Mutiny on the Bounty came in third overall on my thir 1935 rankings, and it was second amongst the nominees. My, my top was the 39 Steps, Second was Top Hat, and third was Mutiny on the Bounty. Okay, so our, our lists are similar. I rated Mutiny on the Bounty and 39 Steps both out of five out of five. Although if I had to pick between them, I would prefer the 39 Steps. And then I would say Mutiny on the Bounty is better than the other nominations I've seen, including Top Hat. Fred Astaire is a phenomenal dancer, as is Ginger Rogers, as she put it, she did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards and in heels. But I just find he is not the best actor 
and I've got a hard time getting into his films. My personal choice for the song and dance men in Hollywood, I would put Gene Kelly at the top of the list. He's they're both flawless dancers, but Kelly is a better actor, I find. So it's easier for me to get engaged by his films. No, I I, I would I agree with that and I sometimes stumble over his name. Part of what does it for me with Top Hat is actually Edward Everett, Edward Everett Horton. And I'll, I'll be honest, I, I don't know what put one over the other. I will say I've seen Mutiny on the Bounty twice recently. I'd watched it first as part of a viewing project, which is when I first ranked it. Uh, and then again recently, this time to take notes for our podcast. And I had a little bit of a, man, I've got to watch Mutiny on the Bounty again. And I don't know what was responsible for that hesitation because I got completely drawn into it the second time around. And I I obviously liked it the first time to rank it as highly as I did. Yeah, I I can see that. It is a very well-made movie, but so much of the movie is watching people getting abused that it's not something you can just pop in and watch every day, right? That there are points that, that drag you down and are difficult to watch. That's the point. That's, you know, that's where the story has to go to tell this story. That's what it takes to understand why the mutiny happened and to have any sympathy for the mutineers. And like we both said, as far as this movie's concerned, the way it presents the story they want the entire audience to side with the mutineers. So they've got to show the misery that they were in before the mutiny happens. So that I could see being part of it. Because it's... You can watch this and say, that was incredibly well made, I was engaged the entire time. But it's not really a feel-good film. No, but I, I don't think either one of us uh, dispute or have any issue with it being the best film this year from the Academy. Oh, no. No, I of those I've seen, it is easily at the top of the list. Looking at the list and the rankings, I mean, I I might argue that, you know, if it was released appropriately, the 39 Steps certainly belongs in the nominees. He had it made it to L.A. that year. Bride of Frankenstein is one that I'll, I've always enjoyed and have a soft spot for, but, you know, I, I do prefer it to Top Hat, but I don't know that I've seen another nominee that Bride of Frankenstein outperforms or is superior to. And certainly, even if it made the nominee list, the award should go to Mutiny on the Bounty instead. I agree with that. And I don't know that the awards have been going on long enough or that certain genres have existed long enough to declare kind of the cliche genre snobbery. I think you could easily take out, let's say, Ruggles of Red Gap or A Midsummer Night's Dream and slot Bride of Frankenstein in its place as a better film from a nominee perspective. But again, I agree with you. I wouldn't vote for it as best picture over Mutiny on the Bounty. Yeah. Yeah, this... It, well, well, we'll get into it a little more next time. For the listeners at home, every ten films... And this is the ninth, because the first ceremony had two. Every ten films, Trey and I are going to do our best of ten to date, and then in our final episode, when we've covered all hundred, 
we'll do the best of 10 of the, the 10 best ofs. So we end up picking what we feel was you know the best of the best picture winners of all time. And I haven't seen our next film yet, but Mutiny on the Bounty is going to be a serious contender for that top spot in these first 10 winners. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I've got a three-way race running in my mind so far. All right, so last thing, who would we recommend this to? This is pre-code. So from the parents' perspective, we do see, again, a, a couple of unclothed men from the rear. But for the most part, you know, there's no profanity. There are some violent and disturbing scenes, especially with men getting lashed, some of whom are already dead. And they've got makeup effects to show the gashes that were there. So it's, like we said, it is a true story, and it's not, I wouldn't say it doesn't glorify the violence, it doesn't go farther than it needs to do to tell this story. But also, as we said, like, you're trying to justify a mutiny at a time when that's not really a thing. So they do show the absolutely miserable conditions that these men are in, and they do not shy away from it. So... In terms of storytelling, you know, once the audience is mature enough that they can see the abuse that's laid upon these guys, which I would think for, you know, most teenagers, I don't think wouldn't wouldn't have an issue with it. Some of the, depending on how much younger they are, it could go either way. So maybe one as a parent you want to screen first. I honestly think that most most viewers these days, if they're mature enough to watch a slightly slow-paced black-and-white film, they're probably mature enough to handle the content. Yes, I mean, I, I don't know how in vogue it is nowadays, but w when I was in middle school and high school, different teachers would sometimes put in different films to try and illustrate a point or give you a taste of a flavor of a particular point in history. And I could see this being shown when I was in middle school or high school. Mm -hmm. And it's, if we could say nautical is a subgenre, I mean, this is not a swashbuckling film. It's not a, it's not an action adventure film, but we've mentioned Captain Blood a couple of times, which was also nominated. That's much more of a straight forward action adventure film. But this has a lot of the same flavor to it. Exotic locations, storms. There is some action in the form of the mutiny it, itself. So if you kind of like that nautical subgenre, I, I would recommend it. Yeah. It, it is well made. The only other point to make is that just in terms of runtime, it, it takes a long time to actually get to the actual mutiny. I mean, I'd say the mutiny really kicks off the third and final act, but that's, you know, that, if anything, that's just a question of the title, right? They're, they're telling you this is what we're building to from the start. So, you, you know, with a different title, you might not necessarily see the full mutiny coming. See, there's a little bit of sense of anticipation I found, and when are they going to, when is that actually going to start? This is the second time the topic matter has been the subject of a film 
and there's one from the early 80s with Anthony Hopkins and uh, Mel Gibson. I, I haven't seen it, so I can't recommend it, but it was simply entitled The Bounty. Mm-hmm. Which does kind of avoid that, because that that is the story. There's not a lot of, of story to tell after the mutiny takes place, or at least not in this script. So it's not inappropriate to have it take that long. It's just, it, it feels almost like an unrealized promise when you call it mutiny on the bounty. So, yeah, that may be why they did it that way. So do you have any final thoughts before we finish up this month? And uh, No, I think we've done Mr. Fletcher and Captain Bly justice. Okay. So, listeners, you can join us again next month when we cover year nine with winner number ten of the best pictures. And it's specifically the Great Zigfield, or Great Zigfeld, sorry, which will be a first time viewing for me. So I'm looking forward to that. Yes. I, if any of our listeners are musical lovers, be, be sure to tune in. It'll be the second time that Lane and I have broached the conversation about musicals, and I've got a lot to say about this one. All right. And uh, other notice for the fans, you know, as we're kind of getting set on the podcast and going forward, we are going to start to have some guest hosts on as a third voice in the conversation. So we've got some of them lined up and we'll discuss them in more detail as they are recorded. But you can look forward to that. So I guess finally, thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.